The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Leaders and students and friends, it's really a joy to be with you today. As Dr. Freyu shared, I love Ethiopia. My whole family loves Ethiopia. Our youngest three children are from this beautiful country, and I continue to, to return in order to help the church in Ethiopia train its leaders, evangelize the lost, reach the unreached, and care for the poorest of the poor. And it's a joy for me to be with you. My desire is that you might become men and women of the Word, who know how to handle all of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation for the glory of Christ and for the good of His people. Whether you're from Evangelical Theological College or Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology or McKenna Jesus Seminary, We need to be seeking to raise up a certain type of minister, one who treasures truth and prizes purity, one who's saddened at sin and intent on integrity, who recognizes that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, one who trusts the trustworthy one, who celebrates the servant Savior, who believes in a big God and that this word has no errors in it. One who is not ashamed to be called a Christian, who's willing to take radical risk for Christ's glory. One who is certain that the all-sovereign, all-satisfying one will be faithful to sustain even through suffering. Even unto death and beyond into glory. I hope that you are being shaped into those kind of men, those kind of women. These are dark and trying days, both for the believer and the non-believer alike. Many of you have tasted deep loss due to COVID. Added to this, in this country, there's great civil unrest plaguing this land with fears, worries. In view of such trials and in view of the false gospel that is being preached by many, not only in Ethiopia, but throughout Africa, South America, and in the United States. In view of these tensions, Dr. Freyu and I thought it wise that I would speak on this topic, promises. The promises of God. We are believers in this room, living under the new covenant, but what do we do with the promises in the Old Testament? Are those also for us? In 2 Corinthians 1.20, when Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus, 
Does that include the Old Testament ones that were given under a different covenant and to a different people in a different time? What are the promises that God desires for us to hold on to in a faithful way? That's the focus of my topic today. So to that end, Dr. Frey, you already prayed, but I I want to pray one more time, so join me as we ask our God for help. Blessed are you, O Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, King, faithful provider forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand, O God, are power and might, and you alone raise up and tear down. You're the one who gives rain for the farmer. You're the one who gives bread for the table. You give life and breath and everything else. The ministry of the churches and the schools here in Otis are yours. My small part this morning in this great body of believers and in your great work among all the nations is yours. And so we thank you, O God. We praise your glorious name. I ask that you'd be honored today. Be pleased to manifest your spirit in power through my teaching. All for the glory of the Son and for the joy of these brothers and sisters, I pray. Amen. So this first lecture is focused on how does the Christian relate to Old Testament promises? The challenge and the need for Christians to claim Old Testament promises. The challenge and the need. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter 1.4, says, God has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, by claiming them, by holding on to them, that through these promises we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. So sin is making promises. Saying that it'll be better if you engage in this activity and we need to fight the desires that rise in the soul when sin promises to us, fight it with greater, more pure desires that are awakened in our soul by God's promises. We become more like God by holding on to His promises. That's what Peter said. Listen to Paul. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Through the promises, we can become more holy. Faith in God's promises creates hope or dread And what we hope or dread for tomorrow can change who we are today. Consider how the Bible talks 
If your challenge is anxiety, how is it that the promises of God can help fight anxiety and make us more holy? What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, food and clothing, will be added unto you. But you've got to seek first His kingdom. So believing the promise of God that He'll provide for us is what motivates us to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Or how about covetousness? How do we nurture a contented spirit? Not craving things more and more and more, but just resting in all that God has provided for us. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that promise today? If you believe it, then you can hold fast to it. And all of a sudden, My craving for more and more is quieted because Jesus has said, He'll be with you. I'll provide all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What if you're struggling with bitterness? Someone has truly hurt you or hurt someone you love. How do we fight the sin of bitterness through the promises of God? Well, we claim, we believe that God has truly said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, we can love our enemies, trusting that He will indeed deal with all those who have harmed us. We hold on to the promise of God, and it helps us fight bitterness. How about... Because you continue to fail and struggle with sin, you struggle with fear of condemnation. How can God be 100% for me? I've got to do and be better for Him to really love me. Not resting in the fact that Jesus is already 100% for us. And that the only sin that you and I can beat, conquer, is sin that's already been forgiven at the cross. How do we fight fear of condemnation? We believe the fact that God has said there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised. And now He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me right now. And therefore, we need not fear condemnation. Fear of failure. I don't know if I can do it. I've messed up so many times. And then all of a sudden you recall, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The promises of God matter in our pursuit of holiness. But not only that, sorry, I forget what I put on here. The promises are important in supplying hope amidst suffering. The psalmist said, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life.
When the tears flow, we call to mind that we have a God who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. When the darkness lingers, we believe in the steadfast love of the Lord, that it never ceases, that His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. When fear assaults, we remember that God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We believe that promise and we hold on to it. When worry grips the soul and you feel alone, we recall Yahweh's pledge, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And finally, when death's shadow draws near, our soul finds rest, knowing that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Even when I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, through the very shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Promises of God. All these passages that I've mentioned are rich with hope. And yet all the promises that I just mentioned related to suffering, all of those promises come from the Old Testament, from Jesus' Bible, the initial three-fourths of the Christian Scripture. I've spoken them as if they're promises for you and promises for me. But they're all from the Old Testament. Is that justified? Are those promises that were given to Adam and Noah, the patriarchs and the nation of Israel for us? And if so, how? Now before answering that question, I want us to consider some of the different kinds of promises that we find in the Bible. And to do that, I want to focus in on the promises that God gave the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those promises indeed influence all the rest, almost all of the rest of the promises in the Scriptures. God's first explicit promise in the Bible clarifies the reason why he permitted mankind to eat from the tree in the garden. Every tree except the tree of the knowledge pertaining to good and evil. This is the first promise that we find in the Bible. When you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. God made that promise to our first parents. And it was a warning. And what you dread tomorrow should change who you are today. Had Adam and Eve indeed dreaded, the, had a fear of death, I don't want God to kill me, they would not have sinned. But instead, they didn't get afraid of God. And they entered into sin. 
But even prior to punishing them, God made a declaration to the serpent. He said another promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, a single male descendant of the woman, he will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. The very one who is a murderer from the beginning, God declares to him, I will raise up a seed who will put a death blow upon you, even though his triumph will only come through great tribulation. You will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. From this point forward, redemptive history discloses a progressive hope in this coming deliverer, whom we know as Jesus. Now, while there's earlier foreshadows, Scripture next anticipates that the curse that was brought on all the world due to sin will be overcome the next time it it unpacks God's overcoming of that curse is with the patriarchs. And it gives four different kinds of promises. Progeny, that's seed or offspring. Property, land. Blessing and curse and divine presence. Progeny. God promises that he'll grow the patriarchs into a great nation. We know that nation as Israel. He'll multiply their offspring like the stars. He'll raise up kings from their midst who will exert influence over the nations. In time, Abraham's fatherhood would expand from being the father of one nation to a father of a host of nations. And Genesis itself tells us that Abraham will become a father of many nations only when that single seed, that male offspring, rises and possesses the gate of his enemies. And through that single offspring, all the families of the earth are blessed. Abraham is the father of one nation during the Old Covenant. He becomes the father of many nations during the New Covenant. He's the father of one nation in the land. Even Ruth, sorry, even Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, all of them were incorporated into the one nation Israel. But Abraham became the father of a multitude of nations in the coming of Christ. He became an adopted father. Number two, property. The Lord committed not only to give the patriarchs the land of Canaan as their central state, with their broader kingdom reaching from the river Euphrates all the way to the, great, to the uh, river of Egypt, He also promised that a royal deliverer would expand the kingdom turf to the rest of the world. 
The single offspring would possess the gate of his enemies. What does that suggest? That when that single male deliverer comes, the enemy gate will be overcome. That by its nature implies that when this individual comes, God's kingdom turf will expand. Not only that, to Isaac in Genesis 26 3 and 4, God says to Isaac, look, I will give your offspring, well, he says, sojourn in the land, singular, I will give your offspring the lands, plural. And indeed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The very offspring that he spoke of, the single male offspring in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, through whom all the nations are blessed, in his day the turf will move from land to lands. And it's reached all the way to Kansas City, Missouri. Blessing and curse. God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring through Sarah. Not only that, the Lord would bless those who bless the patriarch. And he would curse the one who curses the patriarch. Ultimately, Yahweh would use one of Abraham's single male offspring to overcome God's enemies and to bless all the nations of the earth. Wailaita, Hydea, Sadama. That's where my three children come from in the south. Before the throne of God, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, people from every tongue, every language, every nation, every tribe will be worshiping the Son of God. The blessing of God having overcome the curse. And you and I are a part of that. Divine presence. From the beginning, Scripture associates God's blessing with humanity's ability. Scripture associates God's blessing with humanity's ability to represent God rightly in the world. God's favor alone provides a context for flourishing. Curse brings only tragedy. In such a context, Yahweh affirmed, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Over and over and over again. God was with Joseph when he went down to Egypt and was thrust into Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph on the other side of his prison. The promise of divine presence. Genesis 12. Go to the land and I will bless you and make you a great nation and make your name great. Be a blessing, Abraham, so that I may bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse with the ultimate result that through you all the families of the earth will count themselves blessed. That Blessing permeates all the Scripture. 
Genesis to Revelation. God fulfills some of his promises in a single event, like the coming of a specific offspring, whereas others he realizes progressively over time, like the claiming of the land or the lands, and his promise to bless and reach all the nations. Most of the patriarchal promises are initially and partially fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant, nationhood and the promised land with various blessings to neighboring nations. But all the promises of God are only ultimately and completely fulfilled in Jesus and through the new covenant. God's overcoming the curse with universal blessing and a global kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. If all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, should we as Christians claim Old Testament promises given to specific individuals in a different time as us and under different covenants? One of the little children's songs that they sing in America goes this way. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of His love divine, every promise in the book is mine, except the curses. (laughs) Should we have our kids sing those words? Now, prosperity preachers would say, yes, every promise is mine. Claim it for today. By faith, Jesus has secured every blessing, health and wealth, spiritual, physical well-being. Consider Moses' words in Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you faithfully obey, here will be the results. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Are these blessings from Deuteronomy something that we in Christ should be claiming today? Health and wealth teachers are right to point to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith, Galatians 3, 9. But what they fail to recognize, putting that verse in context, is that the blessings that Paul is talking about that were Abraham's directly related to justification by grace alone through faith alone, ultimately in the offspring of promise alone. Look at how it's worded. Galatians 3, 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared beforehand, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So what does it mean to be blessed? It means that we're right with God. You remember how the writer of Hebrews talks about Abraham? He died not having received all that was promised to him. He was blessed and yet died in faith, still longing for more, unable to enjoy it all now. Could it be that God would have us die in faith as well, still awaiting all that He has promised? The New Testament's application of Old Testament promises to Christians. Let's consider how the New Testament uses Old Testament promises. I'm going to say more about prosperity preachers in my second lecture. For my larger purpose today is not specifically to confront the prosperity gospel, but to help all of us as believers understand how to appropriate, claim, delight in, rest in God's promises and all that He has secured for us in Jesus. In responding to prosperity teachers or in grasping for ourselves how Old Testament promises relate to believers, we need to know something. It's not enough to say, well, we're a part of the New Covenant. So you shouldn't be going back there to those old covenant promises. We can't say that. Because the New Testament apostles very often reach back to those very old covenant promises and say, church, they are for you. Consider Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves, Christians, But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. What does that for it is written mean? It means before there was ever a New Testament, Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. And what God said back there in the initial three-fourths of our Scripture matters for us. It is written, a promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay Live by it, Paul says. We gain power to love our enemies in the present because we can rest assured that God will indeed judge rightly in the future. Do you believe that Old Testament promise? How about Hebrews 13, 5 and 6? This gets a little more interesting. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Prosperity is not your goal, says the writer of Hebrews. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Where's that from? That's Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And the writer of Hebrews reaches back there to that Old Testament text and claims it. The New Testament author sees the Old Testament Scripture as lastingly relevant for the church. Another text that he blends is Psalm 118, verse 6. The psalmist proclaims Godward trust during a time of distress. That's the same context the writer of Hebrews is addressing his church in, a time of distress. Some of you have been They've claimed all your worldly goods, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10. They've taken it all away. And yet you rest in Him since you know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. As for the promise in Joshua 1, The author of Hebrews claims that we should not look to money for security because God has promised to always be with us. But what's intriguing is that he cites the pledge that Yahweh gave specifically to Joshua. It wasn't even made to the whole people of Israel. It was made to Joshua. I will never leave you, Josh. I will never forsake you. And yet the writer of Hebrews reaches back and applies it to the whole Christian church. How does he do that? Somehow we can legitimately use the promise God gave to Joshua to help us battle covetousness in our own lives. As Christians, we need to have a framework for how to appropriate that kind of a promise, and yet do it in a faithful way. I'm going to come back to that promise in lecture two. But what I want us to give now, over the next 30 minutes, is four principles that govern how I believe we as Christians should be thinking about the promises of God. Four foundational principles. I've noted the challenge and the necessity for Christians to claim Old Testament promises. The New Testament authors are doing just that. But I don't believe they're reaching back there and just claiming them as if Jesus has never come. They have a framework for thinking about the promises of God that is Christ-centered. And as we think about Christ, who doesn't only come once, he will come again. And thinking about the the relationship of living in light of the future coming into the middle of history in the coming of Jesus. So that everything is already ours, truly ours now. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all things already for us. And yet some of what He seeks to let us enjoy fully, will not be fully enjoyed until he comes again. 
Let us consider four principles for New Covenant believers relating to Old Covenant promises. Number one, Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. This is foundational for how I think the New Testament authors are thinking about everything in relation to the Old Testament. Our first passage comes from Galatians 3, wherein Paul confronts claims that for Gentiles to become full inheritors of what? Old Testament promises. You want to become an heir according to promise? You want to become a true child of Abraham so that all those promises are yours? That's what Galatians 3 is considering. Yet there were some in his day that were saying, you want to enjoy the promises of Abraham? Well, you've got to obey the Mosaic law. You've got to be circumcised. In contrast, the apostle asserts that the old covenant law served as a guardian until Christ came. But now the age of faith has come, so we're no longer under the guardian. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Furthermore, Paul claims that only identifying with Christ Jesus by faith secures the inheritance for both Jews and Gentiles. When Paul in Galatians 4 says that we have been adopted, he's not just talking about Gentiles, he's talking about Jews. There is no Jew who is a true Jew, a true child of God, unless they are adopted by faith into Christ. They might have Jewish blood, but God does not look at them as his child if they have not surrendered to Jesus, the only hope of eternal life. All must receive adoption. So in his argument, Paul fluctuates freely between the singular promise of inheritance that includes God's Spirit and the plural promises of offspring, land, and blessing. So with texts like Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.18 in mind, Paul writes this. Here it is. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons and daughters of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. A blessing that he then says in verse 14, comes through Jesus. Here's what it said in Genesis 22. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now many scholars, and I'm not sure if it's this way in, for example, your NIV. In our English NIV, 
I wish the translators wouldn't have gone this way. They take that singular pronoun, his, and make it plural, there. The term seed or offspring is always singular grammatically. But throughout the Old Testament, by including singular or plural adjectives or singular or plural pronouns, the authors can identify whether the seed is singular or plural. So, for example, in Genesis 17, verse 8, we read this, And I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's plural. The pronoun is plural in order to identify that the offspring is plural. But in Genesis 22, the pronoun is singular in order to identify that the offspring is singular. So what does Paul argue? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, that is plural, but and to his offspring, that is singular, namely Christ. So what's Paul's argument here? Now that the offspring has come, he says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, look at the bold, so Christ is the offspring to whom the promises were made. If you are Christ, then you become heirs. You become Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You get to be an inheritor of all that God promised Abraham, but only through Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Notice up here in Galatians 2, that little, prone, that little preposition, in your offspring. That's the only way blessing comes. In your offspring becomes in Christ, in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You have to be incorporated into Jesus by faith, and all of a sudden you become an heir. This is how I understand it working. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. So what does God do? God makes promises to Abraham and to his seed. Christ is the seed. Faith unites you and me to Christ. Union with Christ makes you and I seed with him. And by that, we become heirs of the promises. If you are in Jesus, and only if you are in Jesus, 
Do these promises become yours? So the first principle is Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. Principle two. All Old Testament curses become New Covenant curses. You remember those long lists of curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Well, in Deuteronomy 30, in the very passage where God says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. He says, and all the curses that are written in this book, see that? In the day of heart circumcision, the Lord your God will put all the curses that are written in this book on your foes and those who persecute you. Paul in Romans 2 says you and I are living in the day when hearts get, when God does a surgery on our hearts. He removes that outer shell that identifies us with the world so that he can penetrate and work in us. We are living in the day of heart circumcision. The new covenant is the fulfillment of this promise. And because of that, in the new covenant day, all the curses that you read about in Deuteronomy, Moses says, would be put on the very enemies of God. That is, the enemies of the church, the enemies of Christianity, will experience the very curses of God that we read about in Deuteronomy. The old covenant curses become new covenant curses. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. What did it say? Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Be a blessing, Abraham, so that through you, so that those who bless you, I will bless. But the one who curses you, I will curse. That's how it was, like the curses of the Abrahamic covenant are curses on the enemies of Abraham. And I'm saying that the curses in the new covenant are not curses that you and I are fearing. They're the curses that our king has promised to bring on our enemies. And we can rest confident in those promises that God will indeed make all things right, take away every tear. Whether he punishes it at the cross, Jesus standing against that one who was once your enemy, and makes them your friend by Jesus taking all that penalty? Or whether, rather than God's wrath pouring out on the substitute, God pours his wrath out on the sinner. God will bring his curses down. The New Testament displays... So here's that old covenant curse. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip 
For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. That's the text that Paul cites in Romans 12. That's the text that the writer of Hebrews cites in chapter 10. Vengeance is mine. What's Paul doing? He's resting, believing that old covenant curses become new covenant curses. But not against the people of God, but against the enemies of God. The New Testament displays new covenant curses as warnings against apostasy and against all who oppose God and his people. Those in Christ will not experience curse in a punitive way, in a way that is decisively for eternal punishment. Why? Because Jesus has bore that curse on our behalf. Christ bears upon himself God's curse against all believers. But that stated, it doesn't mean that God won't discipline us. Hebrews 12 makes that absolutely clear, and it uses the exact same language of discipline that we find in Leviticus 26, exact same language. And in Leviticus 26, the purpose of the curses, five times it's mentioned, I will pour out upon you all of my curses, and if you don't repent, then I will escalate my curse seven times, and if you don't repent, then I'll bring it seven times more, and if you don't repent... What's the point of the curses? The disciplining hand of God is designed to move us to repentance. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that if you share in Christ, you will indeed hold firmly to the end the confidence you had at the beginning. Hebrews 3.14 If you truly share in Christ, you'll persevere. What does that mean? That every time we experience the disciplining hand of God, ultimately, we will repent. We'll come back to our Father. Christians still experience God's fatherly discipline, but no level of earthly discipline or consequence will ever call into question our eternal security. If we have been justified by faith, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Romans 5.9. New covenant curses serve as a means of grace. If you and I experience the disciplining hand of God, they are merely a means of grace. They are not a definitive final end. Think about the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many of them were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And what does it say? Many of them had become sick. Many of them have even fallen asleep, meaning they had already died. They experienced the disciplining hand of God. But 1 Corinthians 11 also tells us that it was so that they might be saved. These were true brothers and sisters that God called home. New covenant curses serve as a means of grace to the elect in order to generate within them reverent fear of God leading to greater holiness. So I say, old covenant curses become new covenant curses. That's the second foundational principle. Number three, as part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original, 
and restoration blessings. Now, what I mean, you'll remember in Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you don't obey, curse. And in the history of Israel, they experienced initial blessing in the land, then they experienced curse by exile, and then the promise all the way back to Moses was that on the other side of exile, there would be restoration, blessing. And what I'm saying here is that as part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the old covenant's original blessings and the restoration blessings. Let me argue for that. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says these words. I've already read them this morning. Since we have these promises, beloved Christians in Corinth, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We have these promises. What promises was he talking about? Certainly, it's only promises that Jesus made to his disciples after he rose from the dead, right? No, 2 Corinthians 6 ends by listing a whole host of Old Testament promises. And so we want to go in and consider which Old Testament promises does he mention. And as we're going to see, he lists not only restoration blessings, which are focused on New Covenant, he also is going to list Old Covenant promises, original blessings. Like Peter, through his precious and very great promises, we partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. 2, Corinthians, 2 Peter 1.4 Like Peter, Paul saw God's promises as central to our pursuit of God-likeness. So, what does Paul share with us? Here's 2 Corinthians 6, just before he says, we have these promises, Christians. What does he say? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What temple is he talking about? The temple of the church. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, now he's going to quote the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now where does he get these, this promise from? He gets it from two different places. One is Ezekiel 37. You'll remember that valley of dry bones. In Ezekiel 20, God said, repeating Leviticus 18.5, Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. And yet they rebelled against me in the wilderness. Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. And they turned from me again in the wilderness. Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. The old covenant did not result in Israel's life. It resulted in their death. 
And the writer of Ezekiel saw it. The law promised, if you obey, you will live. And yet, Ezekiel 37 says, all of Israel became like an army dead in a field whose bones got very dry due to the judgment of God. But on the other side of their death, God had promised resurrection. And in the midst of that resurrection, he promises that he'll raise up the people He'll put his spirit in them, and he'll give them, put over them, one that he names David. This isn't the original David. This is the promised new David. And they will obey God because their hearts will be changed. And then he makes this promise in Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. My dwelling place will be with them. He just told us that His Spirit will rest upon them. It's as if the people who were once dead have now been made alive, and wherever they go, they're like movable temples because the Spirit of God is resting on them just like He rested on the Ark of the Covenant. Wherever the people go, God is. It's as if from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when God, Acts 1-8, pours His Spirit out upon His people and they become His witnesses, it's not just that the church is growing, the temple is growing. The temple is expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The whole temple of God is filling the earth with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. And wherever people encounter you, they encounter the very temple of the living God. Why? Because God promised, I will make my dwelling among them. And the church becomes the temple. People don't have to walk to Jerusalem now to meet God. No, the Jerusalem that is below is related to the old covenant. The Jerusalem that is above, Paul says in Galatians 4, that Jerusalem is our mother. Our citizenship is with God, and we as the church now enjoy the presence of God, and the temple of God has filled the entire earth. So now, people don't have to journey to Jerusalem to meet God's presence. They can meet you at the donut maker right on the, on the street. The presence of God comes to them. And it's fulfillment of the restoration blessing that God promised through Ezekiel. And Paul quotes it. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's Ezekiel 37, 27. But notice what Paul also says. I will make my dwelling with them, and I will walk among them. That's not in Ezekiel 37. To get that phrase, we've actually got to reach all the way back to Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, it's not the part of the restoration blessings. It's part of the original blessings that God gave Israel. Obey and live. If you obey, you already have the temple, but if you obey, then I will, here's Moses, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will make my dwelling among you. You, and I... Among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk 
among you, and you will be, sorry, among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God promised Israel, if you will obey me perfectly, there will be an added escalation given to what you already enjoy in the temple. And Israel in the Old Covenant never experienced it, never enjoyed it. Why? Because they didn't obey. God called Israel, do this and you will live. They didn't do it, so they died. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says the Old Covenant bore a ministry of condemnation that contrasts with the New Covenant ministry of righteousness. But Jesus comes representing Israel, embodying in his being as king of Israel, standing as their representative, and he perfectly obeys. And the implication is that in his perfect obedience, he secures the life that the law promised for all who are in him by faith. But what I see Paul doing here is he's reaching back, not only to restoration promises, he's reaching through them all the way back to old covenant promises and saying, Christian church, because of Jesus' perfect obedience, he has secured for you every restoration blessing of the old covenant and every original blessing of the old covenant. So two conclusions follow from what I believe Paul is doing here with Ezekiel 37 and Leviticus 26. The two conclusions are this. The restoration blessings of the Old Covenant include all the original blessings, but in escalation and without the chance of loss. The way Ezekiel's New Covenant promise reasserts the original Old Covenant blessings from Leviticus 26 supports this claim. Number two, through Christ, the original Old Covenant blessings and the restoration blessings have direct bearing on Christians. Paul appears to draw together both these texts, Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, suggesting not only their close tie in the Old Testament, but also that along with the New Covenant restoration blessings, the original Old Covenant blessings do indeed relate to believers. So I summarize, as part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original restoration blessings. Original and restoration blessings. Now so far, this sounds like, wow, this is really supporting the prosperity teaching. Just claim all the promises. Jesus won all of them from before you. Everyone is yes in Him. Now we come to my fourth principle. Through the Spirit... Christ already, Christians already enjoy all blessings of their inheritance, but will enjoy them fully only when Christ returns. Let me see if I can build this case. Ephesians 1, verse 3, and 13 and 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Messiah who has blessed us in Messiah 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, in Christ, in the offspring, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, what happened? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Prosperity preachers don't want to suggest we have an inheritance that we haven't yet received. They want to say, you have the inheritance Jesus wanted for you, and it's all for you now. And God would say, that's missing something significant. What's significant is that Jesus, in his body, in order to enjoy his resurrection and see himself exalted once again as king over all, what did he have to do? He had to carry his cross. There was no crown without the crucifixion. And we as the body of Christ, in order to identify with Christ in His suffering, are called to carry our cross daily as we await our own resurrection and our own exaltation. Now, Paul says, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing Most scholars believe that these spiritual blessings refer to all the blessings that the Spirit of Christ secures for the saints. And then he goes on to talk about the types of things he's referring to, like election, adoption to sonship, redemption, forgiveness, and sealing, and all that we will enjoy completely when we gain our full inheritance. All of these blessings fulfill the Old Testament's eschatological hopes. They're hopes of the future associated with new covenant restoration. Therefore, while all of God's promises find their yes in Christ already, we enjoy some fully only in the future. He has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You'll remember First Peter, we have a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he cites an Old Covenant blessing text. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 34 holds out a vision of future blessing. For whom? The righteous ones, plural, who pursue good and not evil. And Peter here 
reaches back into that Psalm 34 and says what the psalmist was saying is for us today. There's a sowing and reaping principle that he speaks of. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do this. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. A sowing and reaping principle, retribution. It's the same principle that stands behind the blessings and curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. This future orientation is clear in the fact that the psalmist knew that in the present many afflictions would come to God's followers, and yet he was confident that the Lord hears and delivers them all out of troubles. The psalmist believed in sowing and reaping, yet he was also confident that his believers that he's talking to were going to experience the deepest levels of suffering. Yet God would be a refuge in the midst of them. But the psalmist also says, in contrast to the plural righteous ones, God will condemn those who hate the righteous one, singular. Which I believe is shorthand for the Messianic king in Psalm 34, 21. So Peter too clearly recognized that obedient Christians suffer. Just read 2 Peter. It's loaded with suffering. 1 Peter, loaded with suffering. And he too remained certain that in time God would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So at one level, the blessing that is sought in 1 Peter 3.9 is something that God followers already enjoy in light of its connection to the living hope. It's a living hope. Meaning it's alive already. A hope that you and I are enjoying It's not just desire for the future. Somehow that future desire awakens delight in God in the present. Thus, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed already. But notice what the blessing is related to. If you're insulted, how do you like that blessing? From this perspective, Peter stresses that we experience numerous present expressions of divine favor as we pursue right conduct by faith and in God's power. But nevertheless, while we truly enjoy all God's blessings now, we will only fully enjoy them in the future. Truly now, fully later. Truly now, fully later. In this overlap of the ages, our battle with sin is still evident, but God has freed believers so that no longer does sin enslave or condemn. So too, we still battle brokenness and decay. I've got a dear Ethiopian brother. Right now, he's, he's back in the States translating this book into Amharic so that the churches here can be blessed by it. His wife... His wife's sister died of COVID here in Addis. Then, brokenhearted, this woman's daughter who died of COVID committed suicide here in Addis out of a broken heart for losing her mom. That is real. 
world where you and I are living. It's real pain. Real brokenness. Don't buy the talk that suffering is not for believers. We're going to talk more about this in lecture two. Suffering is for believers. And we have to face that suffering with amazing hope by the power of the Spirit, believing that God has purchased for us, that He who has all authority in heaven and on earth will indeed be 100% for us. Don't believe that God's purposes can be thwarted. Don't believe when the cancer comes or when the car accident happens or when you lose your job that God has somehow stepped off His throne. He was on the throne before the cancer hit and he's on the throne now and it's with that hope that you as ministers of the word of God enter into the hospital room. Giving people hope that the blessing of God in Jesus has indeed been secured. The inheritance has already been ours. It is truly ours now but it will fully be enjoyed when every tear has been passed away. When every enemy has been overcome. And it will happen. Christians have a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. Our inheritance relates to our faith, resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and to the unfading crown of glory that we long to receive. This is the future orientation in 1 Peter 3.14, which reads, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. All Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. As part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original and restoration blessings. And through the Spirit, some blessings of the Christian's inheritance are already enjoyed fully now. But all will be enjoyed fully later. Thank you. Thank you for coming back. Lecture two, prosperity preaching and how Jesus makes every promise, yes. So we're going to open up beginning with a focus more on the prosperity gospel and then transition to considering some specific ways that Jesus brings the promises of Scripture to us. One of the statements I opened with or I, I used last hour was that all the promises are truly for now, but fully for later. God promises to supply all of our needs today according to His riches and glory. 
Philippians 4.19. Yet as Paul stresses earlier, we must be willing to let the, def- the, to let the Lord define what our needs are. Learning how to be low and how to abound, Paul says. Today we look to the Lord for our daily bread, Matthew 6, trusting that He values His people and will give food and drink and clothes and due measure to all who seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, Matthew 6. We also rest confident in Jesus' command and promise, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. These are Jesus' words in Luke 6. Yet as was clear in Paul's own life, having great faith in the truth of these promises did not secure a life free for him from beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, dangers, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. That's what Paul experienced. Prosperity preachers will often say, oh, Christians should expect persecution, but we can face that persecution with much wealth. And we can be confident that our health will be fine. Well, Paul experienced many more problems than simple persecution. Oh yes, the stonings were there, but shipwrecks is not persecution. Dangers, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. These are areas of suffering much bigger than mere persecution. Think about Jesus. He often healed physical sickness, and he charged his disciples to do the same. Indeed, after a series of Jesus' healings, what does Matthew do? He cites Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. He says, what Jesus just did in healing the sick was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew eight seventeen. Nevertheless, in Jesus' first coming, he mostly restricted his ministry to the Jews. Matthew 10. He only raised three people from the dead. The ruler's daughter, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus. And Jesus did not all right, he did not right all the wrongs in the world. There were all kinds of wrongs that the Romans were doing. Jesus didn't address them. There were all kinds of people dying and suffering that Jesus didn't heal or raise from the dead. There's a tension that we must hold in this already but not yet period. What did Jesus say in Mark 10? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus expected that we would experience great trial. We must live today recognizing the truth of Christ's declaration that some of you, they will put to death. Those were Jesus' words. While always we must be trusting that not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Luke 21, 16 through 19. Some of you he will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How are those two the same? Jesus was talking about an eternal inheritance beyond the here and now. Paul, too, healed only sporadically. He does not appear to have expected that all would be healed in this age. We know he healed the crippled man in Lystra, Acts 14. He healed the demonized girl in Philippi, Acts 16. He healed many people in Ephesus, Acts 19. And he healed Eutychus when he was taken up dead after he fell out the window in Acts 20. However, Paul could not remove the thorn in his side, whether it was sickness or, it seems more likely to me, persecution in 2 Corinthians 12. He couldn't heal himself of the ailment that he had when he preached in Galatia. He mentions it in Galatians 4. He also evidently could not heal Epaphroditus from his life-threatening sickness in Philippians 2. He couldn't heal Timothy from his stomach ailment in 1 Timothy 5. Or Trophimus, whom he left ill in Miletus in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. And yet... Many people that he ministered to continued to be ill and sick. God chose not to heal them in the present. My point in all this is that the living hope into which God has caused us to be born relates to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled. But where is it? Kept in heaven for us. The Spirit is already ours, but the full enjoyment of the inheritance is not yet. Prosperity gospel advocates are wrong in thinking that more faith will bring health and wealth today. They're wrong not because they assert the old covenant blessings, are for today but because what I would say their eschatology is over-realized. They're wanting to bring too much of the future into the present now. They're wanting what God has set up for tomorrow already today. God can prove His power by healing, and He does it today. But do you recognize that God can also prove His power by sustaining people's faith through the deepest of trials? If you are experiencing 
deep loss, deep pain, deep brokenness. And you continue to hold fast your confidence in Jesus. How much of a testimony that is. Jesus is worth living, worth fearing, worth living for, worth fearing, worth trusting in, simply because of who He is and not because of what He gives or what He takes away. Prosperity preachers correctly identify that though our Lord Jesus was rich, yet for our sake, for your sake, He who was rich became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Very common text that prosperity preachers will go to. He who is rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. They then note Paul's words, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That's Paul, 2 Corinthians 9. Health and wealth types assume that riches and poverty in these texts mean material gain or lack, and that reaping bountifully speaks of an accumulation of wealth. But that's not what Paul is talking about. First, Jesus' shift from rich to poor. Paul's not talking about an economic transfer, a change in his economic status. Jesus never stopped being God. He still owned everything on the planet when he was a man. His becoming poor is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says this, that he who was rich became poor. It's what he just described a few chapters earlier. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The very one who was of the form of God Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, but made himself nothing. That's what you and I are. Nothing. He made himself like us. Nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Jesus entered into our broken world so that we who were separated from God and under His wrath might enjoy the blessing of reconciliation with God. This is our riches. Indeed, the ones to whom Paul was talking in 2 Corinthians, what does it say about them? They were those who gave to the poor out of their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. The very ones he's addressing were poor. And he was celebrating them. Their pursuit of God didn't change their economic situation in the now. 
Their giving did not secure for them more wealth in this life, but it did testify to the hope that they had in the gospel and to the surpassing grace that God had poured, God had poured out upon them. In the midst of their neediness, they still gave. And what did it do? It testified to how much living for God is worth it to me. Second, with respect to the sowing and the reaping that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 9, what he means is that as you give to others, God will, these are Paul's words, make you abound in every good work. It doesn't say, as you sow good things, God will give you more and more stuff. No, the abounding, the fruitfulness is abounding in every good work. The harvest is not more burr or bigger businesses or more servants, but, in Paul's words, righteousness and increased thanksgiving. Look at, listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 9, 9, 10 and 11. He, that is God, who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply, what? Your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, not so that you can set yourself up in distinction from all others, but you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Rather than building up your own bank account, if God blesses you with stuff, it should be overflowing, never staying with you. You are merely an instrument of God's grace to help meet the needs of all those around you in your ministries. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you see what's happening? God supplies to us all for His glory. He's always the ultimate end. He supplies to us not only so that we can be thankful, but so that we can use our stuff as a means to supply the needs of others so that God's thanksgiving to God, glory to God, can be multiplied from person to person to person, from family to family. We open up our homes and adopt a child. We walk to work every single day and pass the same beggar on the street. And rather than just walking by them, we begin to build a relationship with them. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. And we let them encounter Jesus through us. We, walking with the Spirit of God upon us, take the temple to them. And they encounter the living God living in and through us. Paul doesn't envision Christians working to get nicer clothes and better cars and more power. Rather, the Lord gives to us so that we can in turn serve as His hands and feet to others. And often as we give, as it was the state in Corinth, our material poverty will continue, not change. This diagram portrays the overlap of the ages. What's happened in the coming of Jesus is that the future... What was hoped for in the Old Testament in the future has entered into the middle of history. 
So what you see is the old covenant, the old creation, the old age is now overlapping with the new creation, the new covenant, and the new age between the first and second appearings of Jesus. And in this church age, how is the gospel advancing? Not through rich people exploiting the poor. It's it's expanding through sharing the gospel and through suffering. So that we as the body of Christ actually look like Christ. His own parents, when they went to give the offering at the temple, they gave two turtle doves, identifying that Joseph and Mary, they themselves were of the poor crew. They didn't have even a goat, let alone an ox. They gave the gift of the poor. That's the context Jesus grew up in. And don't expect that the servant should be above his master. Your people need to hear this and the hope of the gospel that is bigger than this life. Our future destiny is secure in Jesus, but our physical body still rests firmly in the old creation, in the old age. Nevertheless, for believers experiencing the effects of the old age's curse does not come to an end. It's rather the very means of God's grace to awaken holiness in us. So we battle sin. You and I, we struggle with bitterness, prejudice, lust. We're still engaging it. That's the fruits of the old age. That's the age of Adam still impacting Christians today. Yet, we face those sins differently now that we are in Jesus. God has freed us from sin's enslavement and from sin's condemnation. In Romans 1, it says God gave them over to the lusts of the flesh. He gave them over to a debased mind. Para didomi. But in Romans 6.17, it says, thanks be to God... Thanks be to God that you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were given over, paradidomi. God gave them over to sin. And now, for those of us in this room, I pray, He has given you over to obedience. Sin does no longer have the final word in our lives in this overlap of the ages. In this overlap, you and I still battle brokenness and decay Every cold that we get, every bout of cancer, these are still things Christians experience. But all of these sufferings, what do they do? They're the very means of grace for weeding out the self-reliance in our soul so that we might become dependent on God and give Him glory. It pushes us to pray and to ask others to join with us so that thanksgiving may be multiplied, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the persecution we went in Asia 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. Indeed, we have the sentence of death upon ourselves. By 2 Corinthians, Paul has already written Galatians, Thessalonians, both letters, Romans, and likely 1 Corinthians. Paul has been saved for 20 years since he was on the road to Damascus. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, Christians. How many of you have been saved, enjoying a relationship with Jesus for more than 20 years in this room? Paul had been saved for 20 years, but he said, I don't want you to be unaware of what we underwent in Asia. We had the sentence of death upon ourselves. Then he tells us the purpose. So that we would not trust in God. Sorry, sorry, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What does he say? The suffering he was enduring, he doesn't attribute it to Satan. Satan is not about so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God. He attributes his suffering to a greater hand. His suffering was by the hand of God so that even after 20 years of sanctification, God might weed out that self-reliance and put him in a context of God dependence because God opposes proud people, but he gives grace to humble people. The suffering you are enduring, that your people may be enduring, that you're serving, they need to recognize that cosmic things are at stake. God is wanting to prove to all the cosmic realm, the powers of this world, like he did in the book of Job, that he is worth fearing simply because of who he is and not because of what he gives or what he takes away. Do you believe such truths? The battle with death in this age of decay looms over all of us. If all you're doing is living for this life, prosperity, health, and wealth in this age, believe me, it will come to an end. And when they finally bury you in the ground, you can't take any of your stuff with you. You must live today with a greater hope. And what does death mean for us? For me to live is Christ, to die is what? gain. The New Testament is clear that believers in this age are to expect suffering, tribulation, affliction. What does Jesus say? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, John 15. Jesus also said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16. Discipleship comes at a cost, Jesus said. Just as Christ had to endure the cross before enjoying his resurrection body, so the church, as the body of Christ, must carry our own cross, identifying with Christ in his suffering before receiving our own resurrection bodies. God's discipline in our lives, what does it do? It nurtures holiness and righteousness, Hebrews 12. And we endure today knowing that something better is coming tomorrow. Paul said, Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14. God is granted, Paul says, that we should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake, Philippians 1. 
He says to the Thessalonians, we were destined for for afflictions. 1 Thessalonians 3. And to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Period. Hands down, that's the truth. 2 Timothy 3. Paul himself experienced trials far broader than persecution. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, 2 Corinthians 6. And as he did, he said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of facing hunger. He had to face hunger. I've learned the secret of living with abundance and living in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your people need to hear that with the strength of Christ, they can endure the pain of physical hardship, of material lack. Don't let them listen to those false promises. Let them claim the true promises of Scripture and understand what Jesus has won for them. If you are a believer, I encourage you to boldly claim the promises of God in all of Scripture, but doing so following the pattern of the New Testament authors. Any promise related to God's presence, His favor, His power, these are things that we already enjoy fully and truly. All other promises addressing physical, material provision, protection. These are something we already enjoy, but ultimately and in full only in the future. Such blessings that are associated with no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, Revelation 21.4 says they are future. With the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him is plentiful redemption. Psalm 30, verse 7. In light of His character, God may still be pleased at any moment to bring our future hope more into the present through a miracle act of power. He could use you by laying your hands on someone and seeing them healed. He can do that. It's his prerogative, though, to know when he will. We must, therefore, continue to seek that others be relieved of poverty. We must continue to pray that God would heal the sick and suffering, all for his glory and his kingdom's advance. God is pleased to magnify his power, but he can do this by removing the pain or by sustaining us through it. The Lord will bring relief according to His timetable, according to His manner and His degree, but we can trust that He will indeed work all things out for our good, which in Romans 8, 28 is conforming us into the likeness of His Son, Romans 8, 29. We can also be confident that the day is coming when all will be restored and God's people will never again thirst or hunger, Revelation 7, 15. Now, if you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. I want to show you a new discovery that I've made in the last month. Philippians 1.
Philippians 1, verse 7. What do we learn? We learn that Paul has experienced imprisonment. He's writing this book unable to move out freely in the rest of the world. He's bound. But why was he put there? Verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He was living for Jesus and it resulted in jail time. I've got a dear brother named Burhanu. He's now with Jesus. Seven years he was imprisoned during the communist regime. For the sake of Christ's name. Paul was there, enduring. Then he says, look with me at the end of verse 18. Here's where we're going to focus. Yes, even in the midst of my imprisonment, yes, I will rejoice. How is it that we can find joy in the midst of terror? In the midst of trial? Yes, I will rejoice. And I am confident of this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this experience in jail will result in my deliverance. So we read that, and we query, is Paul saying that because you pray, I know that I'm going to be set free from, from jail? I'm claiming it by faith. You pray for me, I'm going to be set free. That's not what he's saying. I know this will work out for my salvation. What's he talking about? Well, here's my new discovery. That phrase, this will work out for my deliverance, occurs only one other time in all the Bible. Those exact Greek words. Where does it show up? Job chapter 13, verse 16. Here's what Job said. Now, you remember Job. Many health and wealth preachers will say, oh yeah, I know that Job experienced health problems in his pursuit of God. But that's Old Testament. True believers today, Jesus has made a way so that we won't experience such things. I want you to see what Paul's doing. Paul's experience is persecution, but he reaches back to Job's health problem and is going to claim the same hope that he had. He doesn't see any difference between health and persecution. He believes believers will be experiencing both. And he's going to use the truths that kept Job going through his health problems to give him endurance in the midst of his persecution problems. What does Job say? In chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, here's Job. Though God slay me. Remember, Job didn't, Satan was there. We read about in the beginning of Job, chapter 1 and 2, Satan was there. But when Job experienced the problems and he, he lost all of his wealth and he lost all ten of his children on the same day, 
all of them died. What did Job say? Yahweh gave. And Yahweh is the one who is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yahweh, no, Satan does that. No, Job says Yahweh was the great hand. He has always been on the throne. No purpose of his can be thwarted. My suffering came from God, period. Quotation mark. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. That's the the narrator writing inspired, inerrant scripture telling us how to understand Job's statement. Yahweh gave. Yahweh took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things, Job didn't sin. He gets God right. God is that big. Then, Job's body is filled with sores. He, God gives Satan the, the ability to go and just don't take his life, but you can do anything else to him. Job's wife says, curse God and die. And he says, shall we receive only good from God and not also evil? Period. Quotation mark. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. Job has a very big view of God. Is your view of God that big? I pray that it is. So that you can have hope, even with a God that you can't understand. Why are you letting me endure this hardship? Why is it my grandson who's lost his life? Why is it that I am having to endure without a job right now? Why is my family experiencing such suffering? And God doesn't give us those answers. He didn't give those answers to Job. But Job's view of God was not dimmed. What does he say? Though God may allow this health problem to result in my death, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And then he says, I will surely defend my ways to his face. What does he believe in? The resurrection. Even if I die, I'm going to get to stand face to face before God. And then he says the phrase, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. That's what Paul quotes in Philippians 1.19. But Job isn't saying, I know all of these boils are going to leave my body. Oh, it happens at the end of the story, but at this point, he doesn't know. And the reason that I think Job's life got turned around and God allows us to see a glimpse that everything, he got double at the end of his life, it's not to tell us it's always going to happen that way. But if God didn't give us that earthly picture, we wouldn't know that God has the power to turn everything around. And so he gave us an illustration in Job's life of the fact, tangibly, I can see it, God has the power to turn it all around, whether in this age or in the next By the time we get to John chapter 11, we've seen Jesus heal the sick, care for the poor, but does he really have the power to raise the dead? That's my question because death is still coming. So what does he do? He gives us a visible example in the raising of Lazarus. Many people didn't get raised from the dead, but we see that Jesus has all authority and is able to raise the dead and therefore it gives us hope that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
Job says, though God slay me, I will see him face to face, and I know that this will work out for my salvation. So now we come back to Philippians chapter 1, and notice where Paul goes in Philippians 1.20. What does he say? I know this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me is to live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know this will work out for my deliverance because whether in life or in death, I want Jesus to be honored. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's think about Paul's logic. I want Jesus to be honored in my body by death. For to die is gain. Philippians chapter 1, just two verses later, what does he say? I'm hard-pressed between the two, whether to live or to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. What does he mean by to die is gain? What gain? He's not thinking about big mansions. You know, maybe I'll get right next to the sea and and be able to see all the beautiful vistas. I think it's all going to be there. But ultimately, his desire was to gain Christ, to be with Christ. That's the, the, and if you can approach death as gain, Christ is being honored. But not only that, it is my eager expectation and hope with full courage that I will honor Christ in my body by life. For to me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. That sounds a little strange. What is he talking about? I think he's talking about chapter 3. This is chapter 3, verse 7. He uses the exact same language. Whatever gain, and, and as I read this, I want you to... I'm going to put it right up on the screen. I want you to think about, could a prosperity preacher actually say this? Yet the New Testament calls us to say it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all. I don't own anything. I'm sitting here. It's all been taken away. I'm in prison. I've suffered the loss of all, and yet I have gained Christ. I count all those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Jesus. Now, I've got another verse up here, and that's because Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 1, 19, he not only says, I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That's Job 13, 16. The phrase, for I know that, occurs only six times in all the Bible. One of them is in Philippians 1. Another one is in Romans 
But then the rest are in the Old Testament, three of them in the book of Job. For I know that. And I think because he is citing Job 13, it makes it very likely that the for I know that is actually alluding to one other text in Job, specifically this one. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, He will stand upon the earth. Though He slay me, this will work out for my deliverance. Why? Because I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will reign on the earth, and I will be with Him. And Paul, I think, is drawing these two texts together in Philippians 1, 19. And the deliverance is the deliverance of hope, a deliverance of knowing and treasuring Jesus today and believing that through death I will see Him face to face. In our remaining time, what I want to do, that, that's my overall evaluation of prosperity teaching. I want us to think here at the end of four different ways now that Jesus makes every promise yes for us. And I want you, as I process through this, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a lens, and it's not a, I mean, you see the lens up there. What do lenses do? You look through them to see rightly. But sometimes the way that, that lenses work, if you have really thick lenses and there's a lot of curve in your lenses, if you look at what you're wanting to see through a certain part of the lens, what you're looking at actually gets bent. In the center of the lens, it's straight. You see it, what it the way it is. But if you look at it through a different part of the lens, what you're wanting to look at actually gets altered a little bit. And what I'm proposing, the way the New Testament authors talk, as they're wanting to claim Old Testament promises, they're seeing certain things get maintained, promises are given, and promises come straight through that lens, and there's no change at all. No change in the nature of the promise, no change in the parties who receive the promise. But also, when they see certain promises come through Jesus, so the Old Testament promise is made, it comes through Christ to us. Every promise is yes only in Him. And then we get to enjoy it here in the New Covenant. So certain promises get maintained with no extension. But other promises, Christ maintains but expands the benefits because He is going to be Israel. Every promise made to Israel gets brought into the New Covenant through Jesus and then everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who by faith are united with Jesus get to enjoy those promises. Even though that they were made only to Israel in the Old Covenant, everybody in the New Covenant gets to enjoy them through Jesus. There's maintaining of the promise with extension of the parties. Then there's certain promises that Jesus alone uniquely completes. And then we enjoy the benefits of what He's already accomplished. And then there's finally certain promises in the Old Testament 
that Jesus appears to transform. And I want to walk through, there may be other, other ways that Old Testament promises reach Christians that you would find, but so far in my study of the New Testament, these are the four different ways I see what Jesus is doing working for us. And, and my hope is that what this means is that now you'll be able to go home and three-fourths of the Bible's promises are going to be more for you. You're going to realize all of these are yes in Jesus, but not all yes in the same way. But you'll be able to have greater hope as you bank your life on all the promises God makes that are yours in Christ. So let's consider first. Christ maintains some Old Testament promises with no extension. Christ maintains certain promises without adding any further beneficiaries to the original promise. Many of these are explicit restoration promises where the Old Testament promises what will happen after the exile and it's simply fulfilled in the new covenant. Many of these include a vision of global salvation after Israel's return. Let's consider Daniel. Daniel envisions a resurrection of some to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. This is what we read. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, Jesus, alluding to this passage, saw the same and associated it with his second coming. No changes. Daniel simply says, a day is coming when some will rise to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt, and Jesus says, that's exactly right. You can take all the people on the planet, everyone is going to experience resurrection. Jesus' words are these, and many of those who sleep, sorry, that's Daniel, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does Paul say? Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. Christians can hope in the future resurrection, claiming the promise of Daniel 12 as our own. But we do so, however, recognizing that we will only rise with Christ because He first Himself was raised. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who fall asleep. Christ, the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Him. As Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Daniel 12, 2 is a promise that gives you and I hope. And it's simply maintained across redemptive history. And what Jesus does is identify how that promise that was made is secured. But there's no change in the object or in the nature of the promise. If we've been united with Christ, we will indeed rise with Him. This resurrection has an already and not yet dimension. 
For the redeemed beneficiaries of the resurrection promise are saints of both Old and New Testament epics. The promised resurrection provides one example of an Old Testament promise that Jesus maintains without altering in any way the beneficiaries of the promise itself. You and I are already raised with Christ, seated at the right hand of God on high, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Already we've experienced something spiritually that we will experience physically. Number two. Christ maintains some Old Testament promises with extension. And we're going to camp on this a little longer. While God maintains the nature of most Old Testament promises on each side of the cross, at times Christ's fulfillment extends the parties related to the promise. Consider the text we looked at at the beginning of last hour in Hebrews 13.5. The author of Hebrews applies to all Christians battling covetousness the promise of God's presence given to Joshua regarding the conquest in Joshua 1.5. The Lord said to Moses' successor, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Joshua 1, 5 and 6. So the Lord gave this promise to Israel's leader, and the implication was that if God was with Joshua, and you are a people following Joshua, then God would be with you. Now in Hebrews, the Old Testament's wilderness and conquest narrative plays a massive role in the preaching of the author. It's an important part in his magnifying the way that Christ and the new covenant are better. Moses was faithful to God as a servant, whereas Christ was faithful as a son. Most in the Exodus generation, were told, rebelled, hardening their hearts in unbelief. And because of this, Yahweh declared, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. There were some like Joshua, though, to whom that promise was made, Some like Joshua who believed that God was able to secure rest. The rest died in unbelief. Hebrews 4 verse 2. Later, Joshua did lead Israel into the promised land, but the rest he secured was only temporary and predictive of the greater rest. That the more supreme Joshua, Jesus, secured for all. Hebrews 4 verse 8. So within this framework, this is the framework I believe that's just part, built into the book of Hebrews. Within this framework, if the Lord was with the first Joshua and all who followed him, how much more can we be assured that he will be with those identified with the greater Joshua? The original promise God gave to one man expands to be a promise that he gives to all who are in Christ. We already share in Christ Jesus, but do not yet fully enjoy all that God promised. But because God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we can rest secure knowing that we will one day fully enjoy the inheritance. It's truly ours now and will be fully enjoyed in the future. We are thus freed today to live radically for God in the present, unencumbered by the love of money which is what Hebrews 13 is addressing. 
We can find contentment with all that we have. Knowing that God is for us and with us helps us, Hebrews 12, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now sits down at the right hand of God on high. We can consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, and we are helped to not grow weary in well-doing, Hebrews 12, 3. God's presence and favor are our hope and our security. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, Hebrews 10, 34. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm encouraging you as preachers not just to read the promise and say it's ours. Why did the writer of Hebrews choose that promise at that time from that particular Old Testament context? And how did he get from there to here? That's what I just tried to do, building a bridge. It's an Old Testament promise being read through Jesus. So God maintains his promise of presence with extension. God promises to be with Joshua as he leads God's people into the promised land. All those following Joshua would also enjoy then God's presence. Joshua's name and role points ahead to Jesus, the greater Joshua. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who is leading God's people into a greater promised land. This is the vision of the writer of Hebrews. This is how he's talking, not just me. And all those who then follow Jesus enjoy God's presence. That's why, that's how I think the writer of Hebrews is using that Old Testament promise, with extension. Let's consider another example. The servant as light to the nations. Now, this is a significant one. It really is foundational in my understanding of Jesus at the center for our claiming Old Testament promises. Isaiah 49.6 supplies another example of an Old Testament promise that Christ um, maintains with extended reference. This is the third servant song. Isaiah portrays his coming royal deliverer as speaking in first person. He says that the Lord called him from the womb and named him by name. Isaiah 49 verse 3. What is his name? The one called from the womb to be his servant, he named Israel. Now we might read that and say, oh, the servant is the people. But it doesn't work. Because when we get to Isaiah 49, 6, this is what we read. The very one whom God called from the womb to be his servant and named Israel is given this mission. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant. What's his name? Israel. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The servant's name is Israel and the mission of God's servant Israel is to bring back Israel. 
and not only Israel, all the other nations. How does Israel bring back Israel? It's because in the text, Israel, the servant person, is the means of God to save Israel, the people, and Gentiles. This is exactly how Paul read the text. I will make you, my servant Israel person, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Look at how Paul talks in Acts chapter 26. I stand here to you, stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did people like Isaiah talk about back there? That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, Isaiah 53. That, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying Jesus fulfills Isaiah 49, verse 6. Jesus is the direct fulfillment of the person who would save an omni-ethnic people. But that's not the only way Paul uses this verse in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 13. The Lord has commanded us, Barnabas and Paul, the Lord has commanded us to turn from you Jews, and go to the Gentiles. Why? Because he said to us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes Isaiah 49.6 as if God commanded it to him. But in the Old Testament, God commanded it to Israel, the servant person, who would save some from Israel, the people. And Paul was among them. But my understanding is that somehow Paul is seeing the command and promise that was given to the Messiah because Paul is in him, that promise and that command becomes his. The same thing happens in Romans chapter 10. Now in our NIV at least in the English version, when it reaches back to Isaiah 52.7, 52.7 is in the singular, but my NIV makes it plural, but it's singular. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming good news of happiness, declaring our God reigns. Who's the messenger bringing the news of God's great victory at the end of the age? It's the very Messiah who dies and suffers in Isaiah 53 on behalf of the many. But in Romans 10, Paul quotes that text and says, in light of the church's mission, how beautiful are the feet of those. Paul makes plural what Isaiah originally had as singular. Why? Because those who are in the Messiah take on the mission of the Messiah.
God maintained the promise of serving as a light to the nations with extension. It was originally given to Jesus, and now in the new covenant, those who are in Jesus enjoy the same promise and the same command. So God promises that his servant would be a light to the nations. Christ is that servant light. Faith unites us to Christ. Union with Christ makes us servants with him. And so we join Christ now as lights to the nations. You'll remember the text from Leviticus 26. And just so that you know, I'm very happy to share all of this PowerPoint with you via Dr. Freyu. So you can just have it and you don't have to freak out trying to type everything or whatever. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Remember how Paul cited that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what he's doing. God promises to dwell and walk among his people as a movable temple. Christ is God's temple. That's what Jesus claims in John chapter 1. Faith unites us to Christ. If Jesus is the temple, we unite with him. His presence is now ours. The church becomes the temple. Union with Christ makes us God's temple. And God is presently building his temple which will fill all things. Wherever the church is, the temple is, and the presence of God is manifest. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise God made to restored Israel. Or, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Can I claim that promise? You can't claim it. Cannot. Except through Jesus. They were promises made for a restored Israelite community. Jesus claims all those promises and they now become ours. God makes promises to Israel as king Christ represents the people. He is Israel. All God's promises find their yes in Christ. Faith unites you and me to Christ. And all those united to Christ will enjoy the promises God gave to Israel. That's how I understand what's going on in Scripture. I'll have to go quickly here. Third way that we see in the New Testament. This one's pretty simple and understandable. There are some Old Testament promises that Christ himself has already completely and uniquely fulfilled. Such fulfillments prove to believers that God will certainly keep the rest of his promises. For example, God promises Micah that a ruler will come from Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel. Has that happened yet? Yes, it has. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Reaching all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God promised 
that he would bring that singular male offspring to overcome evil. This very one shall stand and shepherd his flock. Think about the benefits that come to the flock when the shepherd arrives. He will come and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So what does Matthew say? O you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Matthew sees that fulfilled. So Jesus has uniquely already fulfilled this Old Testament promise. We're not supposed to be looking for new messiahs. He's already come. But with that, what does it mean? Every other benefit, like him standing as our shepherd, providing, protecting, it's already ours today because he has uniquely fulfilled that command already. The final way Christ transforms some Old Testament promises. By this I mean that Jesus develops both the promises makeup and the audience. These promises relate most directly to the shadows that give rise to the substance in Christ. The types that give rise to their climax or antitype in Jesus. Now already in the Old Testament, I believe the land promised to Israel in Canaan is portrayed in just this way. Just as God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden and called that garden to fill the whole earth, but Adam rebelled and was kicked out of the garden, so God promised, took Israel, placed them into the promised land, and the vision was always that the land would grow to lands, but Israel got kicked out. Jesus comes and fulfills what Israel couldn't bring about. The expansion of the land to the whole earth. The land that Yahweh promised to Abraham and his offspring as a lasting possession is one of these transformed promises. The patriarch would serve as a father of a single nation who would dwell in the land of Canaan and oversee even a broader geopolitical sphere. These realities are initially fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant and realized in the days of Solomon when he reigned from the river of Egypt all the way to the great river, the river Euphrates. Nevertheless, Genesis itself already foresees that Abraham would become the father of not just one nation, but of nations, anticipating that his influence would reach beyond the land to the lands, plural, father of one nation that would expand to his inheriting the whole world. This would happen when the singular royal offspring would rise to possess the gate of his enemies, and when in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now Paul actually cites these Genesis land promises when he identified Christ as the offspring to whom the promises were made. The apostle then declared that all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter 3. Paul also 
stressed that Christian's inheritance was not the present Jerusalem associated with the Mosaic Covenant, but was instead the heavenly Jerusalem, which both Isaiah and John identify with the new earth. In the new covenant, Christ transforms the type into the antitype by fulfilling the original land promise in himself and by extending it to the whole world through his people. At the center of the land is the temple. Jesus is the temple. And through the people, that land promise is expanding until when there is no more curse, all the turf is filled with the people of God and the presence of God exalts God over all things. In Paul's words, God promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Romans 4, 13. At the consummation, the new earth will fully realize the antitype. While Christ maintains without extension Genesis' promise of the antitypical lands, that is the antitype of what the original land promise anticipated, he does this by transforming the promises to Israel of the land into an everlasting possession that is global. The nature of his fulfillment identifies that the land singular was but a type which he transforms into the antitype just as God had already foretold to the patriarchs. God promises Abraham and his seed the land of Canaan and more lands. They will inherit all these lands only when the promised seed serves as a blessing to the nations. Christ is the promised seed in whom the land promises find their yes. Union with Christ by faith makes us heirs of all the promises. Christians will inherit the world. God's promises are one of the central motifs that tie all of Scripture together. God's promises are often associated with life or death, and often conditioned on whether God's covenant partner obeys. Whereas the old Mosaic covenant was conditional and revocable, it could come to an end. And thus it was temporary, the old covenant was temporary in light of Israel's disobedience. The Abrahamic covenant was conditional and irrevocable, meaning that God would indeed realize all the promises, but he would only do so through his obedient son. Representing Abraham and Israel, Jesus actively obeys and by this secures all the Old Testament promises for all who are in him. At least four principles then should guide Christians in appropriating Old Testament promises. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. All Old Testament curses become New Testament curse, New Covenant curses. As part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the old covenant's original restoration blessings. And through the Spirit, Christians already enjoy all blessings of their inheritance, but they do not possess them in their final fullness. Christ maintains some promises without extension, maintains others with extension, completes some, and transforms some. So I conclude with this. Isaiah declared that throughout the ages, no ear has heard, 
nor eye has seen a God like ours who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for him to fulfill in a way we can fully enjoy all his promises. The call of the biblical text is that we would trust in the promises of God. Just before Paul asserted that all the promises find their yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20, he asserted in 1.18, God is faithful. The Lord is faithful in all of His works. Kind in all of His words, Psalm 145.13. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Hear that warning. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust your souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4.19 Remember also that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, what hope that promise gives. One day God will complete all of His promises to us in Christ. And we will say in that day, Isaiah 25, 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us then be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.